Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for the intro music. Hope everyone is staying safe, wearing masks, social distancing, um, a lot going on. And uh, I was very excited to sort of have a break from the news cycle and get to talk to director Bao Win. If you haven't seen Be Water, it's on ESPN. It's a 30 for 30 documentary on the life of Bruce Lee, the sort of iconic figure in martial arts films and just in general, probably the most significant Asian American in my life. Growing up, there was no one else. I had a few athletes that played NFL. There was Eugene Chung. There was a couple NHL hockey players, a couple baseball players, but we never really had any anybody that was an action figure, like real main star other than Bruce Lee. And his legend only grew and there was a very dramatic biopic of his life called Dragon. Uh, we talk about all these things with Bao. And I think the interesting thing that Bao wanted to explain in his movie were all the sides of Bruce Lee that get lost in the sort of the deification of his legend. And whether it was his first girlfriend in Seattle, Washington, or more specifically, the struggle. And these are things that I didn't know about. I didn't know how much Bruce Lee struggled. And I found it very compelling and meaningful to me that no matter how hard it gets for people that you think are incredibly successful, and he passed way too early before the release of Enter the Dragon, one of my favorite films of all time, you forget that to get to that road was oftentimes full of a lot of heartache. And uh, I didn't know that part of Bruce Lee. I, I know that he sort of struggled to find a role, but I didn't know how it drove him and continued to shape his philosophy and his life. And, you know, Be Water, very significant film. I love anything Bruce Lee. If you like Bruce Lee, you're going to love Be Water. But even if you haven't watched Bruce Lee's films, I just think it's a an epic story of someone trying to prove his worth in America in the 60s and uh, finding his voice. And uh, there's a lot of talk about representation, and I don't mean to belabor the point, but for growing up and not seeing yourself on cinema screens or TV, it's really hard to sort of articulate the power of that. And growing up as a kid, I only saw... I know Al Leong. He was the, the guy in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and he's in a he's sort of a, a role. You know, he played these minor parts of movies like Die Hard. He was the bombs expert. And, and these are what you believe that you could sort of be, and that's how people saw you. And Bruce Lee came before a lot of that, and he paved his own way, and he was very instrumental in my career and my life. So Chris Ying and I were beyond enthusiastic to have director Bao Win talk about the creation of his film, Be Water, and you can watch it on ESPN. So check it out. Bao Win, Be Water. Well, I mean, I wish we were doing this in person. I, I'm so tired of <laughs> doing this <laughs> podcast over Zoom. It sucks. But we're with Director Bao Win of Be Water. It's on the 30 for 30 
ESPN documentary series about the life of Bruce Lee. And we wanted to get him on uh, before the movie premiered on ESPN. You can see it on ESPN Plus right now. But we just couldn't get the timing to work. And uh, just thank you for doing this. I I have no doubt you've done a series of remote interviews. So thank you for joining us. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So first and foremost, how did you land this job, this gig? Because it seems to be like one of the coolest things you could possibly work on. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was definitely like kind of this burden, this weight on my shoulders for a long time because I'm telling the story of not even arguably, but definitely the most famous Asian American. And it was something that I, I wanted to do after my last film. My last film was called Live from New York, which is about Saturday Night Live. And it that took kind of the institution of Saturday Night Live, but looked at it through a different perspective, kind of in a more anthropological look. And I'm always curious about taking um, iconic institutions, American icons, and, and looking at it through a lens that I don't think has been seen before, uh, especially for me as a as an immigrant American, as a children of refugees, I have certain entry points in, into these big ideas that people think they're familiar with, but they haven't seen this perspective in many ways. And Bruce Lee was one of those people where I felt he's been sort of, you know, turned into this myth, this global cultural myth, rather than this Asian American figure. And I, I wanted to really look at him through the struggles of being an Asian American in the 1960s, especially in Hollywood. And I wanted to also see him through a more personal and humanistic lens because the name Bruce Lee really evokes a lot of things for a lot of different people. But when people think about like his actual life, how he grew up, his struggles, his fears and all that, I think that has been lost in at least today's narrative for the generation now. And so I wanted to yeah, look at that myth, but unpack it in a way. And so having that being my thesis, I went around sort of shopping it for a while and and really figuring out like who I needed to talk to. And it wasn't until like maybe a couple years ago. So this was five years ago when I first came up with the idea, but it wasn't just until a couple years ago that ESPN got involved in the project. So about if the overarching thing driving you with this project was to kind of re-examine Bruce Lee or reframe Bruce Lee's life as an Asian American struggling in, in the 60s to, to break through. Were there specific details that you had known about or came across early in the project that you were just, that were missing from the public understanding that you were excited to get across? Was there like specific anecdotes or stories or, or details of his life that you felt were completely missing from people's like Bruce Lee knowledge that you you couldn't wait to, to put out there? I don't know if it was necessarily specifics, but I think it was kind of the overarching narrative of who Bruce Lee was because you think of most people's entry points into Bruce Lee's story, they just assume, oh, he was always this kind of big Hollywood star, or he was always this martial arts icon. Uh, but I think a lot of the times people take it for granted that he struggled a lot in Hollywood, that Hollywood in the 1960s is different and same in many ways of Hollywood today, right? And you have to also think about kind of the society, the the world that he existed in, America that he existed in the 1960s, right? And I think that was kind of my broad approach into entering his story. And then once I started talking to people that knew him, that were part of his life during that time, that's where kind of the specific stories and the understanding of 
his coming of age in America played into creating this mythology of who Bruce Lee is today. And so, you know, I think one of the things to try to be more specific to answer your question, Bruce Lee has always been known as this teacher, right? This teacher of philosophy, of martial arts. Um, but what I learned from talking to the people who knew him most intimately is that he was very much a student. He was a student of, of everyone he came across, especially the early days in Seattle. Uh, we talked to one of his first students, Leroy Garcia, who told us how Bruce Lee was kind of this nerdy, awkward kid. And you don't really think about Bruce Lee being that in many ways today. Uh, and also kind of trying to find a way to fit into American life. And what I found interesting is that he, he didn't try to fit in by assimilating. He, he was trying to fit in by showing his, you know, culture from Hong Kong, his Chinese culture of martial arts and using that as a way to build a bridge and connect to the people around him, especially people who were like boxers in, in Seattle who were starting to learn self-defense and martial arts. I was going to ask both of you guys, what role did martial arts play in your, in your life? Um, I grew up doing Taekwondo and I had Jun Ri as my instructor. He literally was the guy that I would do my formal endings for the belts and he would like judge me. And the reason I only thought he was cool, the only reason I thought Jun Ri was cool because he was in some Bruce Lee flicks <laughs> or something like that, you know? So my world sort of revolved around Bruce Lee growing up. He was the only representation I had. And in some ways, he still is the only representation I have. And I cannot carve out a large enough part of my life dedicated to this guy. I mean, he was otherworldly, almost demigod-like to me growing up. And that's the thing. It's like, like, like I don't know if every Asian kid does it in, in America, but, you know, I was almost forced to do Taekwondo. And I didn't want to do Taekwondo. <laughs> I wanted to do Kung Fu. <laughs> but I couldn't. I had the exact same experience. I did, I did Taekwondo. All I wanted to do was Kung Fu, but the local place was a Taekwondo studio. <laughs> so, so I learned Taekwondo from a Russian guy named Ivan Kravitz instead of Kung Fu from a Chinese guy. Like, I really wanted to learn mom and dad. <laughs> um, Bao, did you have martial arts background upbringing at all? Like, what, what part did Bruce Lee play in, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but like, growing up, are you a Bruce Lee guy? I mean, to answer your first question, I, I kind of grew up in a similar background, um, I mean, David, I grew up in, in Maryland, right on the border of, of Northern Virginia. So I also took Taekwondo as well. And I was a bit traumatized by my experience with martial arts. And I did it for like a year and I just stopped doing it because like, I was like eight or something. I was like, do, do I really need to learn all this when I'm eight? <laughs> like how to like kill a person <laughs> with my hands? Um, well, just really quick, let, let it be known. You cannot kill anybody with Taekwondo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I was like hoping, I was like hoping I would do something cool like that. But no, it was just like, I felt like I was going to get killed in some way. Um, but yeah, for me, Bruce Lee, I, I was born about 10 years after Enter the Dragon came out, after Bruce Lee passed away. And my entry point into Bruce Lee's life, I mean, Dragon was really my entry point into his life, uh, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. But really, my first memory of Bruce Lee was... I was eight or nine years old, uh, Saturday afternoon, watching television and seeing Enter the Dragon. 
and just um, I can tell you what channels they were about. It was channel twenty. <laughs> oh yeah, twenty was like the the kind of the bastard child of like the NBC, of NBC, yeah. ABC, Channel Four, yeah, and, and all and that. And yeah. sometimes you would see it on Channel Five uh, on Saturdays. They would do the kung fu martial arts movies in the DC area. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, at that time, the only depictions of Asians that I'd really seen was like, you know, short round in Indiana Jones. And uh, that was really kind of how I saw myself as short round, because he was around my age when I when I first saw it. And I haven't watched that film in a while, so I don't know how how much I would struggle with that depiction. But I remember, okay, I finally see someone that looks like me, but I wanted to be Indiana Jones. So that was kind of the issue. That was the the divide. Mm -hmm. But when I did see Bruce Lee for the first time, I was awestruck because here's someone who looked like me in in a relative sense, right? Um, that was the hero. That was the leading man in the film. And that kind of created this symbol of who Bruce Lee was. He became the symbol of representation, the symbol of Asian American masculinity to me. And it, later on with Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, the myth demystified a bit, but it still is very much kind of a Hollywood version of Bruce Lee's story. I, but to be fair, like the, the relationship with Linda and Bruce in that film is very accurate because it's based on Linda's book. But I think everything around it, like the Wong Jackman fight feels like you're watching a Mortal Kombat uh, <laughs> fight and, and the whole kind of mystical quality behind his death, which is not necessarily wrong but that it kind of again creates this aura of bruce lee and and everything about him that takes away him as a person so that again that's what i wanted to do with this film is like how did bruce become bruce lee in many ways mm -hmm. that was the surprise for me was the struggle and the rejection because i'm glad that i saw it but it was it was messing with my bruce lee platonic ideal of what Bruce Lee was and is. And I'm glad that it was punctured, but it's still like messed with my head because almost like you want him to be fully formed from the head of Zeus, right? Like this is how Bruce Lee was. And it was painful to see all the struggles that he had in the late 50s, 60s, having to leave America to become a star in Hong Kong and then see, have we really made that much progress in Hollywood? Mm -hmm. And I'd have to say very, very little progress, right? Like I'm thinking about like someone like Jet Li, you know, 15 years ago, whatever, that, that movie Romeo Must Die. And, you know, the scene originally had him like making out with Aaliyah, the late Aaliyah. And they edited, you know, like just Hollywood can never show Asian American men in a like strong lead role. It has to be neutered in some way. And for Bruce Lee to actually have to endure that in that process of finding his voice, that was really, that bummed me out. That really bummed me out. Yeah, could you talk about, your film comes back a few times to this, this central clip of uh, like a screen test that Bruce Lee was doing. Could you maybe describe that a little bit for the audience if they haven't seen it already and, and tell us like, what that was all about. Like he's, he's, he's basically performing to prove himself in front of like, I, I do a little song and dance and being like, I am Bruce Lee and this is what Kung Fu is. Yeah. So this is a screen test that he did for uh, the Hollywood producer, William Dozier, who at the time was the producer of Batman, which is, was a big successful series um, in Hollywood. And 
you know, someone had spotted JC bring actually the hairstylist to the stars had spotted Bruce Lee at this Long Beach tournament and called up William Dozier, who he knew that was looking for, for kind of an Asian actor. And so Bruce Lee came in. Um, when you watch Bruce Lee in this clip, and we, for me, it was important to start with this clip because it shows Bruce Lee in kind of a sense of innocence that you don't normally see him in. But as the clip kind of progresses, you see him kind of form into his own. You see slowly, it's kind of this microcosm for the whole film where you have this innocence of Bruce Lee in a world that, you know, is unfamiliar to him. And then as he gains his confidence, you can see how he becomes, you know, the Bruce Lee that we all know. Um, and he's like literally like about to punch this old white man, <laughs> which I was kind of like, he kind of represents Hollywood to me in many ways. And, and so I, I, the clip encapsulates so much of Bruce Lee. And also I think it feels really personal and intimate. You know, he looks directly at the camera and there's no kind of like, it's just shot in, in basically one, one frame. There's no cuts or anything like that. And, um, yeah, it's just kind of, again, breaking it down to the most primal form of who he was as a person. And I think that was important. You know, the reason I brought it up, like going, building off of what Dave was saying was there's this element to, so he's standing there and they're kind of like, okay, say your name, look this way, look this way, you know, looking at this camera and now show us some of your moves, you know, and, and he's demonstrating some of his abilities. And like you said, they bring on like this very old white dude, producer guy who, who Bruce Lee like kind of shadow boxes or kind of like gets close to hitting, but doesn't. And you know, there's an element, frankly, as I was watching that, I was thinking about you, Dave, and I was thinking about, like, having watched Dave or other Asian Americans in today's media go on to, whether it's talk shows or, or anything else where they go to the mainstream media, and it's kind of like, okay, tell us who you are. Now do some of that Asian cooking stuff you do. <laughs> like, show us some of that interesting stuff. And, you know, like Dave was saying, I, I don't know how much progress we've made in that sense of, of, you know, Asians having to kind of put on their mystical show a little bit, right? You know, it's an interesting point you make because there's this Vietnamese American poet that I, I really uh, look up to and that I, I've been reading him a lot even, you know, before we started this project. And his name is Ocean Vuong. Mm -hmm. And um, he talks about this idea that, you know, his first book did really well as poetry. And then the second book, his publishers like, oh, you, you need to make a memoir because that's what sells as, as a person of color, as an artist of color. That's what the mainstream culture wants from you. And he's like, you know, Ocean talks about this idea that we're as, as artists of color, as creatives of color, we're expected to be tour guides, these kind of comfortable bridges for mainstream white culture into our world, into our stories, into our trauma. And we're not allowed in, in many ways to be artisans of new worlds, of craftspeople of new worlds that we want to form. And that that's always kind of been a guiding principle for me in my career and my work is that there's this lack of narratives about, you know, the Vietnamese experience, the Asian experience. So to be honest, to be in very privileged position to be able to tell the stories, I want to tell those stories, but don't say that's the only thing I can do, right? Like I, I can do more than that. I can build a world. I can do science fiction. I could, you know, and, and I think it's very similar in food as well. And the idea that, oh, if you're Vietnamese, you always have to tell your story. Like all your food has to tell your story and that's it. Like you're not allowed to be like doing 
French food or anything that goes beyond your comfort zone. And I think that's the kind of next step in representation is that we are allowed to tell our own story, but we're also allowed to tell any story we want to in the future. That would be amazing. And I think, I think we're sort of there in terms of being able to express yourself. But watching your doc certainly triggered a lot of those feelings of how do I express myself and how do I push up against the ceiling of what is expected of me. And that's what was so uh, enriching to sort of see Bruce find his voice through the struggle and sort of whittle it down to, you know, no style or whatever his philosophy became. And, and I never once said I make an Asian food. I've always said we make American food. It's everyone else that has said, you make Asian food. I see that with every other Asian American chef. And that's a conversation that Chris and I have a lot when we talk to other chefs. And they don't have to be Asian. They could be African American. It's the, how do you make a concession to show them that you can actually do it better than anyone else? And I think that's hard because you don't want to be typecast. You don't want to be typecast as, I'm a one-trick pony. This is all I can do. You want to show that you can execute at a higher level than anybody else doing anything. And for me, on the culinary end, my Bruce Lee was Alex Lee, who was the former chef of Danielle in the early 90s to about 2002, early 90s, late 90s to 2002. Chinese-American man, 6'2", strapping dude. And to see this guy with a commanding presence run a French kitchen with a bunch of French guys beneath him yelling in French, you know, it was just the sight to behold. And the, the reverence people had for him, I was like, oh, it, it can happen this way. But you have to be better, so much better than anyone else by doing it. I just don't think that's a fair standard. And to see Bruce Lee have to be that much better at being a martial arts expert than literally anyone else, I don't know if people understand how, like, what that delta was, right? Like, if you are a person of color and you're trying to break in, the story of how much work you have to put in just to get noticed is not really told that much. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be difficult, but if you're a company that's currently trying to hire, you're facing new difficulties. From safely reopening your doors to finding the right person for a specialized role, HousingWire could relate. They needed to hire an ambitious reporter to cover news stories on the U.S. mortgage and housing markets. So they turned to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's smart matching technology finds people with the right experience for your job. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And that's how HousingWire found Alexandra Roja. Alexandra never imagined she could get a reporter job in the midst of COVID-19. Hiring was frozen, and the idea of looking for a job was discouraging. So she created a profile on ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter matched Alexandra to HousingWire's reporter job because her degree and writing skills were a great fit for the role. HousingWire received her application only four hours after they posted the job. And a few weeks later, Alexandra started her dream career. ZipRecruiter helped Alexandra find the right job. And they helped HousingWire find the right person for their role fast. See how ZipRecruiter can help you hire. Try it now for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. He was so savvy. I feel like in some of those interviews that you cut to a few times, him talking about his understanding of how Hollywood works, what he has to do. 
and like you guys are talking about, he just knew that he had to outwork everybody, that he was going to have a, a bigger mountain to climb than other people. And that was what really struck me. It was just, like Dave said, the struggle, but just how aware he was of exactly the terms of the game and what was happening around him. And, you know, earlier you brought up, you brought up Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, which I grew up with too. That was my first exposure was Jason Scott Lee playing Bruce Lee in this biopic. And in that movie, there's a lot of kind of like, Asian American wish fulfillment, right? Like every time a uh, like the white guys gang up on him and call him a chink, and then he like beats the shit out of him, and then they all come and want to learn from him, right? There's a lot of like that kind of thing that we all sort of like fantasize about happening. That to me was a very different portrayal than what you were showing. You know, you were showing that he was fighting back through his savvy, through his hard work. I wonder, like, does that other depiction, does the dragon, the Bruce Lee? To, story depiction ring false to you did bruce lee like not fight people physically in real life like in that movie it's, it's he's fighting somebody every 30 seconds he's like fighting guys with cleavers and and like fighting racists like does that was that part of his life at all i mean it's it's part of myth building that hollywood does right and so having watched it as a little kid i didn't think twice about whether or not this is a true story i watched the film right before i started editing be water and I was just appalled of all the, <laughs> all the, you know, historical inaccuracies. But it's something you kind of have to live with in many ways. It's, uh, did it capture the essence of Bruce Lee? Sure. You know, Jason Scott Lee did a phenomenal job. And I think it became part of our generation's mythology about Bruce Lee. And I think each generation has kind of a right to retell these myths, right? And I think with Be Water, I didn't want to retell the mythology. I wanted to deconstruct the mythology and have this new generation who doesn't know anything about Bruce Lee form their own idea of the Bruce Lee uh, myth. You know, a lot of people point to the emergence of MMA and UFC as sort of like being a partially result of, of Bruce Lee and his, you know, economizing of, of martial arts styles. And then, of course, you have so many action movies and martial arts movies that have taken over and really broken out of the Hong Kong cinema or, or, or Asian cinematic tradition where they came from. So, like, I guess my question for both of you is, do you think we'll see another Asian-American martial arts stars, there's still room for that to emerge? Like, and why haven't we seen one, you know, since Jackie Chan, who isn't even American? You know, this is something I think about a lot, a lot, actually. And I don't think the reincarnation of a Bruce Lee is going to happen in a martial arts film because I just don't think so. That's how people consume that kind of content. And we're going to, by the time this comes out, we'll have already released the best of the best podcast, uh, which came out, I think, today. And you know, Philip Rees, the the lead in that. And we're probably going to have another podcast about it because one of the producers wants to talk about our representation of that movie in the sense that we're, we're missing the point that we have an Asian American lead and we're judging them on impossible standards because basically they have to be the next Bruce Lee. Mm. And I don't have enough formed opinion on it yet. I'm just throwing it out there that that's just like trying to say, you got to be better than Shakespeare. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just don't think that's going to happen in a martial arts genre. Uh, uh, maybe it's going to happen as a uh, leading actor uh, in a comedy or a drama, like uh, Oscar winnings. Maybe it's that. But for me, I think what is going to be the cultural touchpoint for younger and older generations is if we have 
uh, an athlete like in the NBA that's not doesn't have a glandular problem that's seven seven, <laughs> but someone that's like six 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 five, right? And like finds a way to break down the game like a James Harden or someone like puts their fingerprints on it in a way that no one's ever done before. And that to me would be my dream. And I would literally retire and just go to every game the rest of my life. <laughs> it's a very specific fantasy you've you've articulated before where you're like, people are like, what about Yao Ming? You're like, no, he doesn't count because he was just so freakishly tall. I need somebody who cannot be, you can't have any excuses for their success. <laughs> and I, I will also add, I think by talking about it in this way of having to prove your worth as a culture, as a race, to the rest of the world or to American culture, that is problematic in and of itself. I understand that's a bad thing too. And I think partly is because we haven't had that representation since Bruce Lee. We just don't even know what that's like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it goes back to this idea of like heroic scarcity in, in, in some ways. Like Bruce Lee was our hero for so long to the Asian American and now today we we're lucky that we have heroes in different fields in food and sports and writing and music. And so I think that creates this opportunity for people not necessarily to have to be the next Bruce Lee, but they can be the next Jeremy Lin or the next David Chang and things like that. And I think that is, that's something I'd rather see than trying to find out who the next Bruce Lee is, right? Because it creates this whole, as you're saying, this myopic view of what we're allowed to be. Like we can only be martial arts heroes or doctors or engineers and things like that. And, and who knows? Like the world is much bigger, right? So they're, you know, Daniel Wu or Donnie Yen. They, if the world was small as Bruce Lee was and there wasn't as many martial artists, they could be seen as the next Bruce Lee or something like that. But I think it gives us this opportunity to think about like, yeah, what's the next step in representation that we don't have to be seen just as martial artists. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear you completely on this sort of not wanting to be pigeonholed into being martial arts movie stars, not being able to expand into other fields and all of that stuff. But I got to say, whenever I see like Jason Statham, like beating somebody up, like my first thought is always like an Asian guy could do that faster or an Asian woman could do that better. Like that's our thing. Come on, Jason Statham, just like been aging for 30 years already. Like, come on, man. Like that's, I hear what you're saying. Part of me is just, I, I grew up with so much martial arts movies. Like that, that was my jam. And like, I hear, I completely understand what you're saying. And, and you're right. Like we need heroes that, that aren't just doing the mystical ancient art of Kung Fu, but like for somebody like me who grew up idolizing martial artists and feeling like that was a, an expression, like feeling also the the emasculating effects of sort of like Asian discrimination, martial arts was also this thing where it's like, yeah, well, if I learn martial arts well enough, like I can beat you up. You know, I mean, I know that sounds neat, like a Neanderthal thing, but like that was in my head. So I fully recognize I, it's just like a weird, bittersweet thing for me because I do like seeing Asian martial artists succeed. I really love seeing that shit. Yeah, I mean, on on a point, kind of on a similar note, like I was in South Africa like a few years ago or whenever like Gangnam Style was huge. And I'm used to be, you know, someone would scream Bruce Lee at me or Jackie Chan, but some like South African kids like screamed like, Gangnam style at me. And I was like, is this progress? Like, it's like, uh, like I feel 
sort of like, at least I'm not being called Bruce Lee, but do I want to be compared to Psy? And like baby steps, right? <laughs> um, I have one question to go back to Bruce Lee. Um, I found it incredibly compelling that he was able to look at America through the perspectives of non-white America, right? Whether it's other Asian Americans or African American culture. And he was sort of absorbing all that was happening in America. And, you know, he was uh, very open to all different things. Did he ever do anything or say anything about civil rights in America? Well, uh, you know, you have to kind of think of like when, what his status was at the time where civil rights was happening. He was still kind of a new immigrant in America, just arrived in the late fifties, early sixties. And so he wasn't in the same position as say like a, Marlon Brando or a Harry Belafonte, even when he was on the Green Hornet, to kind of walk side by side with these civil rights leaders. And he was aware of these events, but I, I would say that he wasn't actively engaged. And for me, how I saw him as being kind of a civil rights activist is that his, we say it in the film, his presence on screen was a protest. Just being seen at that time is so important. And I think that goes back to the the value of representation of seeing yourself in a heroic role and what that means to inspire people around you. It's also important to note that he, when he settled in communities in America, these were very multicultural places, Seattle, uh, Los Angeles, and Oakland. I specify Oakland instead of the Bay Area because Oakland is a very specific place, especially in the 1960s. And all of those experiences informed him I think he was really starting to take it in about who his role as someone who could change culture. And uh, he realized that the power of film, the power of TV to teach people the beauty of this Chinese culture was something that was much more powerful and within his kind of uh, skill set beyond what he would be able to do if he was just kind of marching in the civil rights movement. And it, it kind of like relates to today's conversation with what's going on with racial injustice and systemic racism. Obviously, it's been going on for centuries, but the film came out a week after the tragedy of George Floyd. And for me, it was a really strange time to be talking about my film, doing all these interviews. But afterwards, there were so many people of different generations of different races who reached out to me personally and told me how much they loved the film and how much it meant to them because they needed this kind of breather. They needed a moment of inspiration in this really dark time in America. And for them, Bruce Lee's story was that. And I think Bruce Lee becoming the symbol for better, for worse has made him a protest icon. You know, people in Hong Kong are still using Be Water as a slogan and, uh, and people still see him as someone who's fighting for the underdog. So I think, being part of the civil rights movement isn't just necessarily being on the front lines of a protest, but also being able to change things within the system that you're part of. Um, can I ask a, a more frivolous Bruce Lee uh, factual history question? What's up with that fight in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? <laughs> What's up with, with Bruce Lee fighting? I'm sure everyone asked you to weigh in on this. but I'm uh, glad that's not your first question because sometimes that's <laughs> when I talk to certain journalists. <laughs> when I talk to certain journalists, so did you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I, I just like, want to know about that fight, man. Yeah, I was like, I didn't direct that film. Why are you asking me about that film? 
Um, people some, sometimes they think like, do people think you're Mike Ma? I was like, God, I hope not. Uh, I mean, I, I respect Mike Ma, but um, so yeah. I mean, just to give some context, we were editing the Be Water in London. And I got all these messages when the film came out in the U.S. saying, have you seen the film? Have you seen the film? And I was like, no, I'm trying to make my own film right now. And it it wasn't until like a couple of weeks later that it was being released in the U.K. And then like, you know, Shannon's response to the film came out and then everyone started like I got even more messages and everyone was sending me Shannon's like interview. And then I finally watched the film a couple of weeks later because I was like, "Okay, I'm just tired of being inundated with all these messages. And I, I knew that there was somewhat of a twist to the film and I don't want to, I'm like really down to not be spoiled <laughs> when I watch films. <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was a strange feeling watching it just, and also because I was so immersed in Bruce Lee's life that when that scene came on, everyone in the theater was laughing. And it just mm. like reminds me of like the history of Hollywood and kind of like, blackface and yellowface and kind of menstrualism and like how actors and characters of color are used to prop up the narrative of of the white hero. But then someone like Roman Polanski or Charles Manson is treated with a lot of respect in that film. Mm. And I found that offensive. Like if you're going to treat those characters with respect, why not treat Bruce Lee the same way? And Mm. not to say that Bruce Lee couldn't have been like that in a certain point, but you think about like, because Tarantino said he talked to acquaintances of Bruce Lee. He didn't talk to Shannon Lee about it, but he said, oh yeah, Bruce Lee could be cocky on set. But you think of an Asian guy on a set in Hollywood in the 1960s surrounded by white people. Any sense of confidence is going to be construed as arrogance by many because you're, as an Asian, you're supposed to stand in your corner, be quiet and not speak up. And Bruce Lee, from what I've known and talked, you know, heard from many interviews, he wasn't that type of person to just like, sit down and shut up. And I think there's a thin line between arrogance and confidence, especially when it comes to Asians. And like, if we show any sign of confidence, then we're put back into our place. And I think you have to understand context and point of view. I think point of view for filmmaking, especially in this reckoning that we're having today about representation and about narratives is important. And I hope that people in a privileged position like Tarantino can start re-examining what role they have in, in kind of tearing down and reshaping these narratives. It's exactly what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I mean, it feels like you've had to explain that so many times. So thank you for indulging us. Um, well, th- well, to be honest, I've been very diplomatic about my answer, though, because uh, I was like, I don't yeah. want that to be the headline. But now I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I'm just going to be like... If that becomes a headline, so be it. Like, I'm just going to be and talk about it the way that I feel about it. Well, thank you for doing that. Um, I wanted to ask your opinion on this because this is, as a huge fan of Bruce Lee, something that I don't think he ever gets enough credit for. And I think it's probably one of the most powerful things he's ever sort of uh, pollinated throughout the world is not necessarily his martial arts or his philosophy. It's his fucking style. Did he style everything himself? Like his clothes, his demeanor, like everything on the set? Like who came up with all of this stuff? Was it him or someone else? I mean, just looking back at like all the photos from, especially when he first arrived into America, like how sharp he was, it was all him really. Um, 
I think it comes, it stems from his, his background as being basically the Macaulay Culkin of Hong Kong when he was younger, <laughs> right? And that, that sense of always being on camera, of having this performer's mentality. Even when he arrived to America, even though he was in acting, he was doing these demonstrations, right? So he's always public speaking. He always knew how to present himself well. I think it all kind of came together. I mean, I would say there's like early photos of him in Seattle where he's got like these really thick glasses and he's kind of wearing just a white T-shirt. But at the same time, that's still very dapper for someone at that time. And just growing up, becoming, you know, 1970s Hong Kong Bruce Lee, which I, I wish I could like pull that look off, but I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, some of the articles that came out after Be Water, like there was like a high sobriety one and like a GQ one. And I was like, that focused on his style. It's like, yes, this is what I've been ex wanting and expecting. I was like, this is like, people don't talk about his style that much and like kind of a sex appeal. Right. And I think that I hope someone makes that documentary. I, I apologize that I, I didn't focus on that too much. <laughs> no, uh, no. <laughs> but, it's, but it's definitely part of his, yeah, just his kind of aura for sure. Yeah. Like my, my good friend, Dave Cho has said it. He's like, he's the sexiest Asian ever. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I have to agree. I just think everything about him exuded being so badass and how he dressed and how he carried himself. So, you know, he he broke the mold. For sure. I don't think anyone would argue about that. Um what else do you have working on? What what's your next project, Bao? Uh so I am kind of getting into more of the scripted world. For me, I, I never just saw myself as a documentary filmmaker. You know, I've produced feature fiction in, in Vietnam before. I've directed like shorts and music videos, commercials. I always kind of see whatever vessel is best to tell a story in. And so with Be Water, I wanted to tell a very authentic and I, or I guess honest narrative of Bruce Lee. And so that meant talking to the people who knew him the best and making sure that his voice was kind of the prominent voice and not someone acting like him. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to working in the scripted world because I think for me, I think there's a power in, in media and in television and film to use this format to create mythology. Bruce Lee in many ways has been our Asian American myth for so long. I think it's time now to kind of create new Asian American myths for the next generation and even for our generation. And television, for sure, when you think of the things that you grow up with and like the characters and storylines and and worlds that you really connect with now, I, I think of like uh, watching like TGIF and like the Wonder Years and all these stories that feel like, oh, that's how I should have grown up or that's the model of the coming of age, right, of America. But it, it didn't, even though I saw that on screen, it didn't necessarily reflect my reality. And I think there obviously is a power to seeing your own reality on screen when you are able to be the hero, when you're able to be the bad guy. It's just about being multifaceted. It's not just about feeling like your community, you know, Asians being a monolith. And um, I hope to tell stories that that show us in ways that can help aspire and validate our existence in so many ways. Well, I for one, I'm looking forward to it. And uh we need more and more people, particularly Asian Americans, to get into the field of directing and, and creating creative expressions on TV and in movies. So I'm thankful that uh, you are doing what you do. 
Well, I mean, I'm thankful for like the whole community, honestly, what, you know, you guys do with food and this podcast, like giving voices to other Asian Americans. It's really about this community. One thing that I realized with Bruce Lee is that in many ways, he didn't have a community of Asian Americans, especially in Hollywood, that he could rely on, even though he had friends like Nancy Kwan and there were people like Shur Sakai that were making it in Hollywood. There wasn't the sense of camaraderie and the sense of community that I, I'm seeing today. Like after Be Water came out, I, I got so many messages from people that I really look up to that I didn't think were connected to me at all. Like people in the industry, Asian Americans who saw themselves in the story of Bruce Lee and felt seen and heard. And I can't, you know, people, I think people who are used to being seen and heard in multifaceted ways really take for granted the value of representation, the value of being seen and the value of feeling like you exist. And I don't want to think of it as a trend, like this idea of like inclusion and representation just be something that we're going to forget about, but it's something that should be embedded in what America stands for. And I, you know, I, America is not the perfect place right now, but it's still our home. And I want to be part of to rebuild the foundation of America, to rebuild it after like COVID and after what's going on with what's been going on for centuries again. And it's, it's a great opportunity and again, a privilege for us to be in this position to help rebuild it and help reshape it. And it's writers, it's journalists, it's chefs, it's everyone that has to kind of feel represented in order for us, I think, to push things forward. Yeah. Well, it gives me a lot of it, it makes me feel good to think that what we're we're doing it in media is part of the same lineage that Bruce Lee started. You know, I think we're carrying on the same legacy. You told a you told an amazing story and it's not a martial arts story. It's it was a story about an Asian American fighting for his place in this country and I thank you for that. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, buddy. Well, that was Director Bowen. Thank you for coming on our podcast. Really looking forward to your next project, whatever it is. I can't wait to see a scripted project from you. And to Chris Ying, as always, for helping out. Uh, give us five stars, however you rate this podcast. Continue to send in your emails and questions to Ask Dave at Major Doma Media. And if you give us five stars on our iTunes page and ask us a question, we will answer it for sure or do our best to do so uh, when we do a mailbag. But um, can't encourage you guys enough. Watch Be Water if you've seen it before. Watch again. And with quarantine happening more than ever again, it seems, it's a good time to brush up on the Bruce Lee canon and all his films. Um, I'm certainly going to do that. There are so many good Bruce Lee flicks. I mean, actually, there's not that, that many, but I just think he's the the coolest and i'm so stoked that we got to do a podcast on bruce lee my most favorite asian american of all time so that's it guys take it easy